Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. Dancehall is an entire movement. You know, it's about the kids' likes and dislikes, about their dreams and aspirations. It's about their letdowns and their triumphs. It's about right now. Colonialism has very much shaped a class system. It's poor people's music. People are doing it for the love and not the likes. Rude boys, they were all about style. And it's all about, like, the best dress in the party. Jamaica is an island known for many things, but perhaps one of the most significant is its music. Though the island has a population of just 3 million, it produces the most music in the world per capita. Its music is its pride. But beyond the obvious icons of reggae, such as Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, it has birthed a subculture that changed the world. Dancehall. Hey yo, this is the live and living sculpture. This is Sean Paul coming at you, letting you know. Dancehall is my life, it's my everything. It hit me when I was about 10 years old, and I think the first dancehall song was uh, Michigan and Smiley. Mind your licking with diseases, the most dangerous diseases. I'm talking about the elephantitis, arthritis and the one diabetes. It was just such a rhyming song, but really dubbed out. A lot of echo in it, a lot of reverb. It just hit me like a brick, man. Sean Paul is often credited with bringing dancehall to the mainstream music industry, courtesy of his hit singles Get Busy and Temperature, which topped the Billboard Hot 100. Interestingly, most of his albums have been nominated for Grammy's Best Reggae Album, but in fact, his sound is distinctly dancehall. Reggae may have been the island's most recognisable musical export, but whereas reggae was uplifting and happy, dancehall spoke about the same social issues with a different tone. Highly sexual, brash and at times aggressive, but most importantly with a sick beat. You know, for me, the dancehall culture, you know, it's about the kids' likes and dislikes, about their dreams and aspirations, it's about their letdowns and their triumphs you know it's it's about right now but it's because of how we feel you know and there's a lot of strain um financially and emotionally here uh, physically and so it comes out in the music as well you know hip-hop dancer reggaeton it it speaks about what's happening in that community dancer and hip-hop is so expressive the way that the artist will speak And so I I think it's very powerful, and that's why it's lasts so long for me. While dancehall may be a global phenomenon now, it began as a DIY subculture. Back in the 1940s, many Jamaicans went to the ballrooms and dances to see the orchestras and the big bands of the day. But those who couldn't afford to would use turntables instead. All someone would have to do was set up their turntable and speaker, play a few local tunes out in the open air, and a crowd would gather. It was democratic right from the start. Dancehall is an entire movement. It has shaped um, my entire childhood. Fiona Compton is a London-based St. Lucian photographer, artist, filmmaker and historian who has devoted her career to spotlighting Caribbean culture in all of its glory. I sat down with her to discuss dancehall history and more. 
If you grew up in the Caribbean, especially in the 90s, dancehall has been something that is incredibly influential from not just the music, but the fashion, uh, the way of life, how you talk, how you walk even. It's, it's, it's something that's so iconic. But dancehall started um, in the late 1970s in Jamaica. You'd say that it's poor people's music. Because if you're looking at, you know, these marginalized communities that do not have access to, say, having their voices heard in the society, music was their avenue. So dancehall is very, very much that. It is, you could say, a counterculture. It is counter-colonial. It is counter-bourgeoisie. It is all of that. Um, it's very bassy. It's very sexual. It's very expressive. Um, and it's all of those things in one. And it's, it's, it's a very intense uh, genre of music. It speaks about so many things. So, for example, when you think about Bounty Killer, so Bounty Killer is a wonderful and very iconic um, dancehall artist who's been around since the 90s. Bounty Killer has a song called Poor People Fed Up, and it's one of the most important songs in dancehall history, I'd say. Giving a voice and a platform and amplifying it to those who are not able to do so because of the very distinct class system. Um, and that goes back to the era of enslavement. Um, colonialism has very much shaped a class system. That's what makes dancehall so unique because it gives people the opportunity to speak about the injustices that happen in society in a way that they want to because it is the expectation of people who are from marginalized societies to always come with a certain level of humility or kind of almost begging to, oh, please listen to my voice and it must be very passive in order for you to open up yourself to see the injustices that are happening around us and we're not allowed to be aggressive or, or to be angry or to, to, you know, to really assert ourselves. And that's what makes dance really unique. On August 6, 1962, Jamaica became a free nation, no longer one of Britain's colonies. Because of this severing of ties, however, imports of American records ceased, but it was the moment that spurred on the development of a local recording industry that could tailor-make records to match Jamaican tastes. First came Scar, then Rocksteady, and eventually Dub, which would have the largest influence on dancehall as we know it today. By the mid-1970s, Jamaica was politically unstable. Constant and random violence began destroying the dance business. By 1977, the country was on the brink of civil war. Even Bob Marley had left Jamaica after a politically motivated assassination attempt, but he returned to headline a peace concert designed to unite rivaling political factions. Following the peace talks, musicians were free to express themselves, and dance parties began kicking off all over Kingston. What followed is considered to be the golden era of dancehall creativity, helping shape the sound it is still known for today. Everybody got their own fight in life. Everybody got their own cross to bear. Here's Sean Paul again. And I think that's a very important thing uh, to, to recognize and realize and just use whatever it is that's a negative to your advantage. It can be turned around. You know, there's some artists here in Jamaica that started from they were nine years old and their house got burnt down. They had to move. So, like, that's a whole different set of stress. And, you know, Bob Marley sang three little birds sitting on my doorstep. And he also sang cold concrete was my bed last night, you know, and rock was my pillow, too, because there was hard times here, you know. So I think with every genre, there is that dark side. 
there is a more inspirational side as well. That's what's the beauty of this, of music for me in general. You know, a nice song is a nice song. But also, if you could put certain argument, you know, the, the word sound power into the music, then it's like even more powerful for me. Like all great subcultures, Dancehall is just as much about the style as it is the sound. Dancehall parties are parades of bright, bold looks worn by both men and women. The parties are a chance for people to display their individuality with big sartorial statements. I definitely think it's all about making sure you are the the best dressed in the party. Bianca Saunders is a London-based menswear designer who grew up in South London's Caribbean community. She remembers her parents' taste for dance hall and recalls the influence it had on her own sense of style, as well as the designs that she creates today. I remember like on Sundays, my dad used to always buy the dance hall like, tapes of different parties. And it was just quite interesting because it is all about like being a celebrity within your own like scene. Sometimes either like the guys will be dancing in front of the video doing like the newest dance moves or be the women in front of the video who whoever the dance queen was. This is how you would kind of like find out what the latest dances were and what the best songs were and that sort of thing um, at the time before social media and like all the rest of it. People still do the same sort of thing. Like now that kind of like Instagram people are kind of, um, I guess, reposting these videos and these certain moments, it's, it's, it's nice that there's been created a bit more of a documentation of it. Can you tell us a bit about, I don't know, the kind of iconic looks for men and women within dancehall? It's interesting because I feel like in London, we use the term bashment a lot more than elsewhere. And bashment is mostly just a, the, is a term for like how people dress to, to go to dancehall parties. People love Gucci, Dior, Fendi. Fendi is definitely very, very dancehall. Anything that has like um, a, a really good print, people can notice that what they're wearing. So it's all about kind of being noticed like very Larry like patterns and like gold jewelry and things that are very much revealing of the skin and stuff like that especially like the sort of um dance hall queen idea is like looking the most like bashiest um and like Larry so the music's influenced by the party scene usually with other music it's usually the music influences the party instead of the party influencing the music so I think that's that's a very special thing to take away from it. By the time Bianca was growing up, Dancehall had developed its signature, bombastic, sexually brazen style, shaking off the shackles of a traditional English upper-class look. The freedom to dance, to MC, to be openly sexual, allows for social, political and physical freedom from the realities of everyday life. In Jamaica, those were defined by violence and political upheaval, and abroad by racism encountered by diasporic communities. The term slackness was a key theme. It means to be loose, to be out there and sexually liberated. And although the Caribbean is religiously conservative, Dancehall began to experiment with bold sexual liberation. What people need to 
realize is that the Caribbean is actually very conservative. Fiona Compton. People may not see that, but actually, for example, Jamaica has the most churches in the world per uh, kilometer. For you to be sacked means you're being revolutionary because you are stepping into that power. So women would be mostly be the ones called slack, right? So when you look at in, in dancehall culture, it is celebrated for men to be, um, you know, sexually promiscuous, right? They're asserting that's how they assert, assert their kind of masculine role. So um, in songs like Beanie Man's A Dog Like Me, like he's literally talking about he's just going to woman to woman and you'd find those lyrics a lot, right? But you know what's great about dancehall is that women have been asserting their own um, sexual autonomy as well. So loads of people love um, Megan Thee Stallion's um, and Cardi B's WAP um, and saying like, wow, they've never heard a song like this where women are like, yeah, like they're really, really asserting their own autonomy. But that has existed in dancehall for, for decades. And that's amazing. So when you look at artists like Lady Saw with the song uh, Fuck Me With My Heels On, you know, you look back, you look around now and all of the women that you see in hip-hop asserting themselves, asserting their sexuality, and even the way that they dress and they present themselves could literally be taken from dancehall queens in in the 90s. Yeah. It's incredible. The 1990s, I think that was a very important step in soon. You know, they started to understand that there was um, some commercial value in dancehall. Also, the fact that it's very openly sexual. And that, that also gives av- avenues for women. So when you think about Patra. So Patra is one of my favorite dancehall artists like ever. And seeing Patra, who is there in her pum-pum shorts or batty riders. That's what we call shorts, very short shorts. And she's, you know, in a drop-top convertible with Tupac. You know, I think that's when those kind of things started. For many women, dressing up at night allowed them to take on roles that they would otherwise not have been able to occupy during the day. This is epitomised in Don Letts' 1997 film Dancehall Queen, in which the protagonist lives between two lives, one as a normal woman and the other as a dancer known on the scene for her charisma, moves and sensational outfits. In fact, long before there were women dominating the hip-hop charts, Dancehall's female MCs paved the way for the likes of Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown, Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B. Not only were they musical pioneers, but they were in control of their sexuality and their look. It's the outfits. Like, if you want to understand Dancehall, look at 1990s Dancehall Queen outfits. Like, they went in. Like, gold batty riders, like, crop tops, matching wigs with your thigh-high boots. And, you know, the thing is, when you'd see them dance, you see, back in the day, dancehall queens used to dance by themselves. You would not see them really dancing with men, right? They would go into the center of the dance and then they'd show off their skills, right? Sometimes they'd be touching themselves in between their legs. They'd be doing all of those things. But it's like, I loved it because it was that ownership because they were asserting their their sensuality without having the, the, the need or the presence for a man. They were sensual and sexual within their own self. To me, it, it epitomized female empowerment. And a lot of people say that dancehall is misogynistic. Yes, it can be, but I really do believe that if you take a deeper look into it, there's so much female empowerment in there.
Meanwhile, the men were just as flamboyantly attired in heavy gold chains and one particular style of shoe that has appeared in more than 3,000 dancehall songs. Clarks, the English footwear brand known for school shoes and slippers in the UK, somehow became a symbol for wealth, style and garnered a cult-like following in Jamaica. Here's Matteo Bellantani, the head of design at Clark's Originals, to explain how that happened. Rude boys, they were all about style, uh, which was called like Trash and Ready, which is also a song like Supercats, arguably the first song mentioning Clark's in their lyrics. The Clark's brand journey from this small town in Somerset to Kingston, uh, it might appear unlikely to be fair, but it is, I think this is the authentic aspect of street style or streetwear, how we know. Uh, it takes everyday products or brands out of their original context and rebrands them as a fresh new look. Clark's is a perfect example of how one subculture, although unrecognised at the time, transformed something fairly ordinary into a countercultural symbol of style and substance. In turn, it helped shape the reference for generations that followed. To this day, Jamaica remains one of its most significant markets, and it goes to show just how much the power balance of the Caribbean and a quintessentially English brand has shifted. Today, it's dancehall that has the true cultural currency. At the late 60s, uh, beginning of the 70s, the sound uh, system from, from Kingston stra- started to touring abroad, especially in the UK. We heard a lot of stories, really like pilgrimage of uh, Jamaicans coming here in the town of Street to buy shoes from our factory or from our outlets. It, it was cheaper to buy here in the UK. So they come here and they literally feel cardboards and cardboards of shoes and they, they carry them back on the island to give away to their family, friends, and the local community. So it was literally a, a movement that was well, like super important. And there are hundreds, hundreds of Clark's references in Jamaican song lyrics, uh, Little John, Trinity, uh, Ranking Joe, Scorcher, and obviously Bibbs Cartel is the one that in 2010 put the Clark's globally on the map with his song Clark's together, together with Top Can. So the connection, the relationship with Jamaican culture is, is, is a pillar, is crucial, is not important, is more than important. I think it's thank you to, to Jamaica that we are what we are. And not, I'm not joking by saying this, because it was really a huge thing that exploded across the globe then. See you for part two after the break. Today, dancehall is one of the Caribbean's biggest cultural exports. However, with the sound going global, it also brings to question who benefits from its explosion in popularity. Here's Sean Paul. Oh, that's a deep question because... Um... It started backwards. From the 60s, as I said, in our country, most of the time, the producers was, were making most of the money. They pay us a little money and it's, the song is somebody else's song now. And it's something we didn't realize until I started to break bigger. And I was like, okay. When dancehall broke, the artists started to make a lot more money in terms of we got lot, the stage shows started to turn up. We got a lot more people coming to the shows. So then we got a lot more pay in that respect. And th- that's what I've based my whole career off of is, is doing shows. Um, it's not until I broke internationally that I realized 
how much money could be made from selling the record. And so for me, in my genre, yeah, we've been, you know, over the years, taken advantage of, you know, sampled a lot without knowing that, hey, you could get money off of that. You're supposed to. You're owed it. Um, it's cool for other people to do my genre. Yeah, sure. But to give us the accolades, if you don't give us the accolades, that's not cool for me. We've been through the years where we've taken, we've been taken advantage of. And then now it's a time where I think it's just where to be celebrated. The genre is to be celebrated. Yeah, people like myself will be able to, you know, see the work in Jamaica that is more authentic and that will drive grassroots of it. This isn't anything new. As Fiona Compton explains, it has taken decades for Dancehall to firmly establish its place on the global playlist. Along the way, there's been just as many unsung heroes as there have been success stories. With Dancehall, when you look back in the 1960s and so on, even before that, Jamaica just used to have lots of R&B records being sent down from the U.S., right? When you look at um, how they decide to remix their own things, when you look in like 1964's Michael Lollipop, that Scar song, which is very um, popular still today. But that freedom to create music without any copyright <laughs> like issues and stuff like that. So therefore, producers were able to produce their own music and therefore, it was it had the ability to grow and develop loads of artists and for it to be a movement that was accessible to everyone. Can you tell us a bit about the turning point when Dancehall went global? I think Dancehall started to go global from the 90s. You know, with Shabarangs, the fact that Biggie Smalls was doing um, tracks with Supercats. That's when Dancehall really started. And then, you know, iconic songs like um, Girl Flex, Time to Have Sex. And then, of course, Buju's very controversial song, Boom Bye Bye. People like Beanie Man, who was used to be more on the underground scene, and then he started to get more and more popular in Jamaica. And then, you know, the lens shifted um, internationally onto persons like him. And then he started to, you know, do collaborations with, with people like Janet Jackson and so on and kind of shifting it. And then, of course, Sean Paul. People would say he's a more palatable type, quote-unquote, because his lyrics are not, you know, quote-unquote, aggressive or violent. They're about women and girls and dancing and having fun. So there's that kind of crossover there. All of those things is really how it then it began. And then you started to get, you know, they started to understand that there was um, some commercial value in dancehall. For Sean Paul, the issue of appropriation versus appreciation is complicated. And the lines get blurred, you know what I mean? Like I have a song with... Sophia Race right now that's streamed over 50 million, I guess. Yeah. So that's a dancehall oriented track. You know what I mean? I think people are are open to experimenting, you know what I mean? And 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 people in the foreign press ask me the question, how do I feel now that Afrobeat has now taken a certain space that dancehall had radio-wise and play-wise and stuff like that? For on one hand, I feel amazed and happy that our genre has influenced African-produced music in that way because they, first of all, influenced us. You know, Sly Dunbar, he, he sampled loops, and so did Steely and Cleavy, and they, they used drums from Africa to make our music. And then now we have influenced them. They do something which is kind of different, and it adds to it. I can even go back to Sting and uh, reggae music. 
Uh, you know, he's been sh touring with Shaggy recently, and uh, he he's a global superstar. There is also the fact that Bob Marley loved uh, people like, you know, Curtis Mayfield and, and took drew influences from from people like him. So it's a vice versa thing. It's a symbiotic relationship. You know, um, arguably one of the biggest dance hall songs in the past three years was Bosey. And yeah, it was produced by a, a UK dude. It's a simple dance hall beat with, you know, a drum and bass that's really groovy, easy to dance to. And so that's the thing that still has us in international waters. I can I can mention the Rihanna and the Bebas and you know the Drake and all of these people who utilize the sound of dancehall and Afrobeat uh, back and forth. It's inevitable, as I said, and for me, it just proves the the power or you know the strength of 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 what we've been doing over these years. Dancehall still faces an obstacle in its global recognition. By modern liberal standards, the lyrics of Dancehall can often be heard as incredibly misogynistic, homophobic and violent, a dramatic contrast to what is typically heard on Western radio stations. So the question is, can we separate the music from the message? Fiona Compton weighs in. The discomfort behind Dancehall and Dancehall's lyrics in terms of its misogyny, its violence, and its homophobia, I think people need to look back at the history of as to why. You know, the thing is, dancehall hasn't it has been unfairly judged because people are not looking at the root cause as to why people feel the need to speak this way or to speak this violently. Sometimes we have to look a little bit deeper as to who who are the voices that um, that who are speaking these things and why. In terms of the homophobia, obviously that stems from Christianity. So if you're saying that Jamaica has you know, more churches in the world than anywhere else per capita or per, per square kilometer. It's not just by chance that Jamaica is homophobic or more homophobic than other places around the world. That is a manifestation of the abhorrent violence that happened during the era of slavery. You know, I think dancehall, yes, is kind of moving in and out. And in order for, you know, dancehall artists to, you know, get commercial contracts and stuff, they may kind of, you know, monitor their lyrics and so on. And that's fine. But I think it's just people need to kind of consider the core as to why dancehall is the way that it is. Whereas pop music in America and Europe has come to embrace many queer artists such as Lil Nas X, Sean Paul says this may be harder in Jamaica. That being said, he still sees a more progressive future taking shape. Will there be a Jamaican Lil Nas X? Probably not. Um, but the sound, uh, there's people experimenting with sound here all the time. I think the new players in the game, what's been very exciting for me in dancehall culture is the, is the females. As you said before, it's been a very alpha male-dominated thing. But now there's Spice, also Leela Ike, there's Naomi Cohen, there's Shensia, who to me is one of the most exciting stories that's happening in dancehall culture right now. So for me, it's a woman's time right now. Around the world, dancehall parties have never been more popular. With them come new audiences and a new generation of artists 
who are inspired by the past but are also bringing their own lens and values to a global vision of what dancehall could look like. I'll leave it to this one to introduce herself. Hey, it's your girl Shensia and you're listening to Identity from ID. Shensia, keep it blessed, blessed. What I've been doing now and what I am setting to achieve, it hasn't been done for a long time and in some aspects it hasn't been done at all. Dancehall, for one, is one of my home genres and I feel like for so long people have been trying to stifle it in a way because it's too raunchy and I feel like I'm one of those persons to say that, yo, if you don't, dancehall doesn't have to be raunchy and that's what I'm trying to change right now because they're so afraid of dancehall because of what they previously heard in the past but ever since i stepped on the scene i've been showing that yo i can sing about being independent and kids have been singing that back and it is still considered as dancehall you feel me so i feel like i'm trying to change the stigma yo it is not only considered as a a, a form of genre that is rude kids can still be taught from that genre you feel me so it's everything to me, and I'm just trying to make it better and broader. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy, production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite, and Sean Griffiths, and art direction and design by Callum Glenday. Alexandra Talarch. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieburn, and Identity is produced by Podmasters for Vice Media.